guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a really special episode for you, as we do every single week. Um, as you guys know, we made some comments on the De Tomaso. Oh, by the way, I'm, I, I have the, uh, the Bob Garrettson stuff lined up. But right, because we we did interview Bob Garrettson. Yeah, and uh, it, but it went a little bit long, so I have to. It's like an hour and twenty minutes, so I want okay. I want to edit it down a little bit and get get to the meat of it a little. Sure. And I didn't have a chance to do that. So, so that'll be next week. So that'll be next week. So we, uh, as you guys know, we talked to um, a little bit on social to uh, Mr. Wynn. Who, right. So this this goes back to one of our news episodes a week or two ago, right. where we were commentating on the P seventy two. Right. Correct? Right. Right. Exactly. And we we talked about it's beautiful, blah blah blah. And I'm like, you know what? I'd really like to talk to this guy. Right. And I really like I like design. You know, I went to art school and dropped out, but I I was you know I got beat that that stuff beat over the head. I got beat over the head with that stuff. Just design, design theory and everything. Yes. So I'm like, well, let's talk to let's see if he'll talk to us. And he did. So that which interview is awesome. coming up. And um, I was not present during that interview, which is probably good because thinking back, I said, oh, that thing looks exactly like uh, the P45. And right. oh, it's not on. It's not original. So it's probably good. <laughs> he didn't get to yell at me. I totally disagree with you. So it was it yeah. was a kind of a good debate back then. But they actually listened to the podcast and then decided to come on and, oh, that's and awesome. talk to us about design. And one of the coolest things I think is if you look at the two cars that, that he's designed recently, the Apollo supercar right. and, and the De Tomaso, they're completely different. One is a heritage design, and the other one is completely future and forward-looking. Right, so, so definitely a breadth of a design. Yeah, there. so we talked to him a little bit about what's it take to design, you know, two different vehicles like that. You know, how what kind of, you know, what do you have to do to your mind to be able to do that? So yeah. we talked to him about that and, and many other things. We're also going to lead off with, uh, I had some couple of questions on social come through, and I always have people, what camera do you shoot with, what, you know, Tell me about photography. Why? What? Are, why are you good? What, what? What can I do? You know, even just with my phone to take better photos. Yeah, because let's be honest, that's what most people have on them I, most of the time. Right. I get a lot of. You took that with your phone. Yeah. I get that all the time, and yeah, I did. But there's some simple things that you can do. Uh, this is probably. <laughs> this isn't like when you're on your web browser. It's like try this with these simple tricks. <laughs> it's not quite like that. But I do. Okay. I, I do give you guys some some stuff that you can throw out there. Uh, and just experiment awesome. with. I'm looking so, forward to that. Yeah. Oh, next round of rally approvals. Yeah. I'm going to go through those this weekend. I meant to do it today. Well, Didn't so have we, time. we basically are doing them monthly, right? Yes. Yeah, so we'll have, uh, you also have all of August to apply to the rally. Yep. Um, depending on, you know, it's getting each month it gets full. So if we get to my limit of cars, which we're w well over halfway there now, you're going to be out of luck if I approve <laughs> that many people. So get your applications in. And when you get your application approved, make sure you buy the ticket. Ah. Don't, just, don't just sit on your application approval. Right. Otherwise, you will not be locked in. That's right. Awesome. So we got a new sponsor. We do. I'm really excited about this. So let's introduce our latest sponsor, Oberk Car Care. So Oberk is a manufacturer of detailing compounds, pads, and polishes. And after 15 years of experience working with the largest brands in the industry, these guys, the engineers at Oberk, decided to make one simple, holistic system that really removes the guesswork from paint correction. And I'll tell you, Chris, as you know, I'm not any sort of a detailer, and it really is one of my least favorite things to do on a car. But I tried out their system. They sent me some, and it's awesome. And best of all, it's foolproof. And you haven't shared any with me. No, I haven't. You don't get any. No, That's it's, why. <laughs> and I did get to use it and buff out my truck a little bit. My sister brought a new car. We buffed out some stuff there, and it's awesome. I, I don't have a lot of experience buffing and doing a lot of detail work like that. Is there a and difference so between awesome. polishing and buffing, or are they the same thing? 
I'm not the guy to ask, Chris. I just said I'm not a detailer at all. I know there's, you know, the cut and buff system. So that's what right. I received from then. Uh, I, like I said, it's awesome. It's foolproof. Whether you're working on an old 59 Corvette or a 2018 Accord, all of Oberk products were developed to work with any and all paint types. So do they sell uh, chemical products or do they have uh, yep. like so, polishers and stuff too? So what they sell is you can go to their website, Oberk carcare.com that's o-b-e-r-k carcare.com and check it out okay but what i got was their kit i think they called the stage one mm -hmm. kit or something to that effect where you get a pad that's dedicated for the compound and it's color-coded so i know the red pad goes with the red compound that and works out really good for you because i asked for the white a, compound. i asked for a usb extension cable today and you couldn't <laughs> figure out what i meant <laughs> I was, so this uh, color-coded thing yes. is is it's good. Perfect. It's very good. It is Jake-proof. Yes, exactly. Uh, they're actually manufactured in Germany and here in the good old US of A. So the Oberk system can be used for anything from light hologramming in the paint, you know, where you kind of see that effect, or all the way to extreme oxidation. You know, this simple one or two step system makes it easy to identify what will work for you. So like I said, oberkcarcare.com, use our code OVERCREST, and you'll get 15% off any Whoa, order over 35 dollars. That's really good. Yeah, and they'll even toss in one of their famous Eagle edgeless towels for any Overcrest fan. I like edgeless towels. I do too, and I used it, and it's awesome. All right, so uh, <laughs> I have gotten nothing. So you'll have to share. I you'll offered you a, a t-shirt. What am I going to do with <laughs> my car with a t-shirt? Come on, man. All right, maybe I'll pass along those uh, detailing supplies. All right, you. I'd like to try it out. I don't. I also don't really like detailing my car that much so anything i can use that makes it easier this, I'm, I'm down I'm you're gonna down like it. it all right so um photography and i could probably do a whole episode about photography right. but i just thought it would fit in well with mr wind's yeah, you know, design, design theory and photography and so let's let's talk about what makes a good photo when you look at a photo you know it's a good photo but you may not know why you know, it's just like anything Most else. things you shoot are good. Most things I shoot aren't. That's <laughs> my general rule. <laughs> but there's a reason for that. And, you know, one of the things is you probably, you see, but you don't look. Hmm. So that's probably one of the things that you what do. What do is, you mean by that? Okay, so. That's very philosophical. So when you see something, I see you right now, but I'm not looking at you. If I was going to look at you, I'd start thinking about, you know, your hair, your eyes, or what color shirt you're wearing, or okay. your position at the table. That's looking. Okay. Gotcha. Seeing is what you do every day. Looking takes more time. Yeah, really paying attention. So I think everybody would be a better photographer. They would just slow down and take the time to look because everybody knows a good photo when they see it. So it's really not that hard to take things hmm. that you've seen before and apply them to what you're seeing at that time. So that's that's easy for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> just slow down and look. So okay. that's my number one thing is just look. Um, so what makes a good photo is symmetry or asymmetry. You know, you have two different things. Symmetry means same, same shape. Same Can't something either be symmetrical or asymmetrical? Right. Yeah. So but you have both are good. Both are great. Well, then check that one off the box. I can do that. <laughs> either one of those. But see, the thing is, is that uh, there's difference between like symmetry that's good and symmetry that's bad. You okay. can have bad symmetry too, where it's just like, why does this exist? It's just <laughs> redundant. And you can have asymmetry that's bad because the balance is wrong. Sure. You, know, you can have this the asymmetry in the I wrong I for sure place. have identified that. Like, why is that not centered when it should be? It yeah. almost and The problem is. is, is if you have asymmetry that's too close to the center, mm. and it just doesn't feel right. And sure. that's another thing that when you're taking the photo, just look. 
And you can see, you can, when it's nice thing about a phone and a screen is when you hold it up and you go to take a picture, you can see exactly what the picture is going to look like all the you time. Know what I struggle with though, Chris, I can be like looking at a shot. The few times I've tried to actually compose a shot and I was like, yes, right here, this looks good. And then I snap it with just my phone and it looks nothing like what I'm seeing in front of me or envisioning. I, I don't know if that has to do with lighting or I don't have that problem. <laughs> so okay. basically, I'm talking about composition. So composition is like the number one thing sure. that will help your photo. Two is subject matter. Okay. Right. You can, you can put you know, a chair in your photo and have it be perfectly composed, but it's not a good photo because no one cares. Mm. It doesn't move anybody. It's not important. It doesn't say anything except the fact that it's probably a place you want to sit down. True. It's, it's just not. So subject matter matters, whether it's okay. emotional or it's action oriented or it's telling you a story or it makes you, you know. So it, should a photo always like say something? I don't think it has to. Okay. I don't think it has to say something. The, the, I think people try too hard if they're getting a photo to say something. Okay. It doesn't have to make you feel anything. No, but that certainly helps. So a lot of that is going to be action and mm-hmm. a conveyance of something. So you can have, you know, you can have a great, let's say um, you're driving your car and I take a great photo that's well composed, great colors. Just for example, I sent one to a, a Patreon member yes. the other day. It's a 934 yellow and it's all the colors of the racetrack are blurred behind this yellow 934. And it doesn't tell you anything. True. It's not it's not conveying a story, but the action of it and the colors and the composition are what makes it good. So you don't really, yeah. you don't need it to tell you that's anything. That's a good point. So color and how you edit the photo is also important. So mm. you can take, I, I edit every photo I post gets edited on my phone because I want Sepia everything. <laughs> Sepia is dead. <laughs> Sepia is absolutely dead. Um, so, I mean, you want to try and find a, one thing that I encourage people to do is find a way to edit that you like okay. and either develop within that system, whether it's Visco or, I mean, there's a million different things that you can use on on the internet on app gotcha. stores just use, you're talking one. actual like apps or apps actions or, editing sure it, you you have to do it. even when you were in the dark room back in the day you would do dodging and burning and you would edit your photo you could change the exposure depending on what you're doing with chemicals and temperatures so it's a different i know these terms but now it makes sense where they came from to me yes yeah i didn't realize that so Yes, exactly. The, you know, dodging and burning is, <laughs> right. is from back in the day. Yeah. You'd hold like little pieces of paper over the, the enlarger or the, okay. so you'd have, the, you'd have your paper that yep. would sit on the table and the, the light would shine through the negative onto sure. the paper for a certain amount of time. And if you wanted it to be exposed less, you could, you could put a piece of paper or tear up a piece of paper and like put it in front of the light. And you could like, you could change the exposure of certain parts of the image by doing that. Or you could cut out stencils and stuff. You could do all kinds of crazy stuff. Now I want to, we should make a dark room here and develop our own film. So I I actually shot five rolls of film and I told my wife, I'm like, hey, I'd really like to do a dark room. Yeah. I'd love to do that. sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. She's like, oh, that sounds really expensive. I don't want to do that. The chemicals smell bad. I don't want to, you know, whatever. (laughs) So then I go to get it developed somewhere and it's like $190 for five rolls of film. And she goes, hey, you should do your own dark room. room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So also, uh, Here's the here's the main so the main thing we've got is symmetry and asymmetry composition blah 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 right? right but here's another thing garbage in garbage out if it's a bad photo there's nothing you're gonna do to edit it ah. or fix it it's gonna be garbage no matter <laughs> what there's really okay. no saving photography with editing I mean you I know there's a lot of people that do digital illustrations and they can you know really work a photo but for me garbage in garbage out and that's I something like that. that I that I experienced when I was shooting film if you didn't get it right the first time throw it away mm-hmm. i just i just don't if it doesn't look right i usually don't try to save images right all right so there's 
Um, some things that you can turn up, you can do with your phone to help. So now we're getting to the actual settings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things settings can, on your I can settings do. on your phone. So there's Say. there's different things that you can download. There's more advanced camera apps. Oh, so you can actually um, on some of them you can separate the exposure and the focus. So I don't know if you've noticed when you're on your phone that when you touch it, oh yeah, you touch the screen, right? It's gonna focus and get That's, its exposure oh. and, and it's what's called metering. Yeah, so it's gonna meter that spot. On the on the frame of right. your phone. So what you can do is some apps will separate. That makes sense. And it makes two circles instead of one. Yep. And you can expose and do th- so. That gives you a lot of control over the exposure of your shot. Yeah, because there's certainly been times where I was like, focus there, but that's way too bright now, yeah, or anything else. Exactly. So and that makes sense. So that'll help you out a lot. Plus, some of these apps will give you control over shutter speed, ISO, stuff like that, even wow. in your phone. I mean, what is ISO? I know shutter so, speed makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So ISO is, I actually don't remember what ISO stands for, um, but that's basically film speed. Okay. So back in the day, uh, you'd have different film speeds. You have 100, 200, mm-hmm. 400, 800, 1600. And as you go up, they get more sensitive to light, right? So okay. you have, or ISO 3200, or you can even push film farther beyond that. Okay. You know, and, but here's the thing it always gets grainier, right? Oh, okay. okay. So that's the way it works with film. Is it gets more sensitive to light, but the photo quality goes down. Okay. And he, and here's the and thing. So on digital, it's called the same thing. It's called ISO. And the way that they increase the ISO to make it more sensitive to light, because the sensor is just a sensor, right? So right. how do you make that more sensitive to light? You increase the voltage to the sensor. Oh, no kidding. And you make it more sensitive to light. But as you increase electricity or voltage to anything, it's called increasing the gain. Mm-hmm. And anytime you increase gain, what do you get? Less accuracy or oh like noise noise sure. noise whether it's audio equipment your sensor on your camera whatever you huh. increase noise and that increases that so you if you it, ever notice the photos that you take at night kind of look grainy and shitty right that's noise that's the gain from your sensor the voltage being increased interesting and so, so how does ISO differ from shutter speed well the shutter speed is how long the the sensor is exposed to light. Okay, and ISO is the sensitivity of the sensor. Right. So if you gotcha. increase the ISO speed and make it up, you can do a faster shutter speed. Right. Okay, at, at they they are directly related to yep. So you have three things. Usually on your phone you don't have to worry about aperture, which mm-hmm. is the iris of the lens. Right. Okay, so those are the three things that are constantly in balance with each other. You have the film speed mm-hmm. or the or the ISO speed on your digital camera. You've got your aperture, which is the iris, which is how much light is being let in. Right. And then you have the shutter speed, which is how long your film or your sensor is being exposed to light. Sure. So you can balance all those things. If you want to lower shutter speed, you have to either lower the ISO or increase the aperture. So you might gotcha. want to do a motion shot so you'd have a lower shutter speed. Yep. But, you know, here's the thing with aperture is the more wide open it is, which is a lower number, you get that depth of field. Oh, that's sure. what creates that shallow depth of field. So it's kind of this balance of what do you want to do at any given time, which gotcha. is kind of one of the fun things about photography is you're you're in control of three different things, which gives you all these different variables. So wow. it's, it, it's it's pretty much so. Um, on this, your, is, this is a very good primer for myself. <laughs> so I hope the listeners enjoy it. Yeah. So I I can go on. This is probably going to go long now, but that's, that's fine. That's all right. I love it. Um, so on your phone, yeah, you usually have an option to turn on a grid. Yes. And if you've been into art design, anything, you've probably heard about the rule of thirds. Yes. And this is a general rule. Okay. So there's way more ways to do composition than this. 
You've got Fibonacci spiral, the Phi grid, which is like a different kind of grid. I don't, I didn't see it on my phone. I wouldn't check to see if it was there. Okay. The Phi grid is usually a little bit better. The 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 cr cross sections are a little closer to the center of the frame. But when you turn mm. on your your phone, you can usually select the amount of grid that you want, okay. and it'll measure it out into thirds for you. Mm -hmm. The human eye generally likes the balance of putting something on that thirded intersection. Right. So the subject that you have, you want to try and place it on the third, whether that's upper third, lower third, left third, right third. Um, another thing you want to consider is uh, is the balance. What is going on in the image? So if you have your subject on the right and there's something big visually on the left, you can use that to help balance the image. It'll give a different feel. Okay, so if you have nothing on the left mm -hmm. and your subject is on the right, it's going to give a very isolated, lonely feel mm, to sure. the subject. But if you have something that the person is looking at or that the car is driving towards or whatever, you can have a little bit of balance over there and just change the dynamic of the photo using the the visual weight of something. It's all about balance. All right. So it's, you just want to yeah, try and create no, balance. Is, and awesome. you can do different types of balances, right? So you can have um, you can make things feel very lonely, right, by just sure. by like isolating them. And you can give that feeling of or you can make, also it's not even loneliness you can make things feel special by okay, doing that sure you're highlighting that um so one of the things that i struggle with all the time is whether to have the the uh, so let me walk back just a second um you want to know where you're leading the viewer's eye okay so yes. when you have an image perspective will draw the eye what something is looking at will draw the eye where a person is looking they will also look where that person is looking. Sure, just kind of subconsciously. You, you, you will. Fact. You'll do it. If a car is in a shot, it could be driving in or out of the frame. I always have, like, in my head known the very rudimentary things. Rule of thirds. Okay, I know that. I yep. got it. Cool. And also, if there's a car driving, I always thought you got to put more space in front of the car because that's where it's going. Yes, that is technically true. Kay. However... Sometimes it's okay to break the rules. Right. And no, can, I imagine. And you can do it. I've done some shots where the car is facing That's out where of the, the frame. That's where the art comes in. I guess to so. this whole thing. But it doesn't always work. So you just generally sticking to the rules um, are, 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 are the way to go. Okay. Um, so the biggest problem with your phone is the lens. It's a tiny little glass lens mm -hmm. with a tiny little sensor, mm -hmm. so, and it, which means that the pixels are very, 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 very small. Okay. Okay. Which means they just, they suck. They just don't res they don't resolve the image well. So if you relative were, to like a full frame right, DSLR. Like, like an SLR or anything else. So sure. everybody's like, oh my camera's 50 megapixels. It's right. like, yeah, but who cares? Because the it's your lens is the size of a, a pencil eraser mm -hmm. and the sensor's even smaller. So if you really want to get into doing something uh if you want to move past the phone, I would recommend you get like a Sony mirrorless or a Canon mirrorless camera and just like a really basic 50 millimeter, which when you hold a 50 millimeter lens up to your eye, mm -hmm. it's going to be really, really close to what you see. So if I take a 50 millimeter lens on a full frame camera, which is basically, uh, you know, any of the Canon SLRs that, I mean, you can get into like crop sensor cameras too, but I don't want to get too detailed. So you take this 50 millimeter lens, you look through it. Yep. Or you look at it on the screen, and it's going to look like the world is to you. Sure. It's not going to be too wide. It's not going to be zoomed in. It's really, really, really good because then you'll see something you like, and, and you go, oh, I want to take a picture. That. You'll hold your camera up, and you can like, you'll, it'll it'll start to tie the world into your camera because it looks the same. Sure. And that's, that's how I recommend everybody start is with a 50-millimeter lens. 
fascinating. That's it. So, that's, I mean, I can, if people want to know more about how to balance depth of field, aperture, yeah. shutter speed, I can certainly get into it. I'm realizing there is a lot that goes into every <laughs> shot. And I just think you see, see something pretty and have good equipment and you just do it. But that's, you know, honestly, there is I, so much skill. I always get asked, what kind of camera do you have? And you're like, what does it matter? I said, it doesn't matter. Because I have three cameras. Sure. If I tell you what all three of them are, are you going to know which one it was that I took the photo with? Yeah. Or, you know, what drone was that? What you know, what equipment do you have? What lens do you have? It doesn't really matter. It's, yeah. It's, it doesn't matter. Don't ask that question. Ask, why did you compose it that way? Where were you? Mm. What's the subject? What were you going for in this shot? Any photographer is going to respond much better if you do that. Wow. That's really insightful. All right. Before we get to uh, Mr. Wynn, why don't you tell us about another one of our sponsors? Yes. Petrol Box. So Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service made just for car guys. So each month they put together some of the coolest products and gadgets from around the industry and deliver it right onto your doorstep. So they select items such as tools, detailing supplies, shirts, other apparel, stickers, subscriptions, you know, magazines, and they send them, like I said, right there to you. So it's kind of a cool way to sample all these products, and it's always a surprise. That's what's so great about these subscription boxes, especially one that's for car guys. Yep. Um, what's really cool about these guys as well is they also give away a set of rotiform wheels to one of their subscribers every single month, yeah. which I imagine has to be really good odds. That's awesome. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to get a set of wheels. Right? So I, we cannot, actually, gu I cannot guarantee what I just said. I was going to say, we need to said. put a disclaimer right there. So we've partnered with them to offer a discount on your first month subscription. And there's actually two levels of this subscription that you can choose from. The Petrol Box Basic starts at $19.95 per month, less than 20 bucks. And then you also have the Petrol Box Premium that gets you more gear, more stuff for $39.95 a month. So as I mentioned, go check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to receive that $6 off your first month's order. Awesome. All right, let's uh, roll my interview with the wonderful Mr. Wynn. Hello, Chris. It's, it's, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Really nice. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Yeah, um, so, so it was funny. We talked a little bit over over Instagram about about design and uh <laughs> and it's it. I was sitting on the on the porch thinking about you and how you must go through your life because I went to school for um, photography and you know graphic design and three D animation, so I have like a little bit of a sense of design. But you must mm -hmm. go through your life every day looking around, being like, "That's terrible design. That's bad design. That's horrible." And the question is, is <laughs> when I was in college, you you're taught the very basics of design, whether it's the golden rule of thirds or symmetry, color, whatever color theory. How is it that designers go through their life making things that are eyesores and they're terrible? What what forces their hand to violate all the rules that they were uh, that they learned in college? Um, that's a good question, actually. I think, in my opinion, when we look around us, especially in our environment, um, a lot of the design that we see are primarily engineered. I would say. So, I would say, take take for example a maybe a lamppost or a, uh, a fence, uh, traffic lights, something along those lines. And, you know, you, you can see that this is made to serve a purpose with um, little aesthetics in mind, other than the fact that it gives a message or it has a specific function in mind. But in my eyes, it, it, it totally contrasts the environment it's in. And it's 
Yeah, like you're saying, eyesore. Yeah, so I mean, all those things still have to function, but somebody designed it, and it's like, how did you get to this point where you designed that? <laughs> you know, it's and it's you know we go through our lives, and it's almost like a blight on on society. It's so it weighs heavily, and a lot of people don't realize it when they're walking around. There's things that are terribly designed, whether it's uh, engineering or transportation engineers, engineering a road or any or designing the way things work, and it all just kind yeah. of it all kind of weighs on you. And I think. Um, I made a comment to you that if everything was designed well, everybody's lives would be far more comfortable, happy, and rewarding. Yes, exactly. I mean, is this something I've actually recent thought, recently thought about? And it's uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because, you know, when I'm driving along the road and I see, you know, patches of tarmac that are darker than, you know, the other bits, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible eyesore and it's uncomfortable. You know, this is uh, it's distracting to the user. And, uh, you know, it makes you question and for you know, designers like myself, maybe I, I look at this and think, you know, why isn't there some kind of regulation to stop these kind of things from happening? Or, you know, it just looks dirty, messy, and, yeah, unappealing, like you say. Right. All right. Well, let's move into the, <laughs> into the topic at hand. Um, I want to learn a little bit about you and where you came okay, from. Okay. Where did you grow up? So I uh, grew up in the UK. Uh, I was born in the UK. And, uh, yeah, during my childhood, it was n- nothing much to really brag about. Uh, the environment was quite poor. Uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, things like drugs and alcohol in the environment, which was yeah, very unstimulating, to say the least. Do you, uh, do you think that that gave you some sort of contrast in your life, having, having some of that ugliness in your life? Is that where you, did you use that to find you know, beauty when you were young in, in terms of art and design and drawing? Yeah, I guess you can say that really, you know, um, you know, to escape this world or to escape this kind of environment, you know, I, I probably just stayed home. Uh, you know, I watched a lot of uh, National Geographic channels, things that regarding to nature. I found beauty in the world through that way, um, as opposed to, you know, stepping out the street and, and absorbing this horrible this mess that, that was surrounding me at the time. What were you drawing back then? Uh, I drew a lot of animals, actually, a lot of animals, uh, of course, a lot of cars, uh, but I was really incredibly fascinated by nature growing up as a kid, uh, learning everything about them and what kind of parts they played in the ecosystem and, and the functionalities of the world, uh, the, the, along these lines, this kind of stuff. How did that, uh, how did drawing stuff like that kind of translate into, you know, doing design that's for something functional like a car? Um, when you apply the beauty of nature, um, you know, at the time, I think as I progressed in my career, I, I, uh, I worked on the front Stephenson, so who's also a nature freak. Um, he taught me to find the, the beauty, the art and beauty in nature and try to incorporate those into uh, design, you know, find the function in nature, but also uh, incorporate those elements uh, into things like cars, you know, vehicles, anything that moved and apply those uh philosophies into design sure so what was your car culture life for you around that time were you super into cars when you turned 16 or 15 or whatever is that something you yeah, were into? crazy <laughs> crazy i couldn't wait you know when i uh you know it was uh when i first got my license you know i was i was driving everywhere but the, at the time the car scene was uh yeah it was pretty crazy we would call it the max power era here in the uk oh yeah the max so power we, magazine that it there's yeah, I wonder. Exactly. <laughs> for anybody that doesn't listen, Max Power was a magazine from the UK, and it was always some crazy, 
body kitted her high power car on the front with a girl in the smallest bikini you've yes, ever seen. Yes. That, that exactly. was it. It's like half naked women. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so this uh, we had a very healthy level of uh, let's say uh, a scene of automotive. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, kids my age back then were very into it. Uh, not so much these days, but back then it was really thriving. And you know, drifting and all this danced kind of cars came into the scene. It was all new, it was all fresh, and it was really, really exciting. Uh, it's a shame now you don't really see much of this anymore. Yeah, what were you driving at the time? What was your car of choice? Oh God, <laughs> kind of embarrassing, but I, I had a Renault Clio. <laughs> That's not so bad. You could have said something much worse. <laughs> yeah, but I think after let's say a year's ownership, I, I changed straight away to to the uh, Mark One Miata. Okay. And uh, did you, when did you start knowing that um, you wanted to start doing design for cars? Uh, what, what influenced that decision for you? I think very early on as a kid, um, you know, my dad was uh, all, actually the, the, the whole family from my dad's side was pretty much petrol heads. You know, they were crazy about cars and, you know, they would have RX-7s, E36M3s, you know, 944 turbos. Um, these kind of cars back then, which was, you know, incredible, like Calibras, all, all, all kinds of cool stuff. And that really, I think, impacted my childhood as I was growing up. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated. I can remember when my dad had his 944 Turbo S, um, that would make him make the pop-up blinds come up, you know, before he shut the car. So every time we get out of the car, I would make him do it. And, you know, it was fascinating just to see it almost come alive at the time and at that time of age. Um, we had magazines about cars all over the place, you know, uh, you pick them up and draw them. Um, yeah, I guess it kind of just spawned from my very early uh, childhood. So do you have a car that you drew back then that you can look back on and go, wow, that's actually, I could, I could redraw that today and have it work. Uh, yeah, actually, I don't have anything that I can recall. Um, you know, since moving houses a few times, I, I kind of lost kind of the material, but, um, it might be something online, but I'll have to, yeah, you know, I'll have to look through this and see if I can find something. So when you look at a car, and it, it's just a car in general, it doesn't have to be a luxury car, sports car, or kind of car, anything. What mm. defines good car design when you look at it? Good car design. Okay, uh, this is very, this is very good. Um, depends on market, but uh, in general, I would say the ability to. As anything, as any product design, the ability to evoke an emotion, you know, a sense of want, uh, fulfilling purposes, uh, it can, you know, it has to have an impactful and, re and rewarding experience for the consumer. Uh, things like taking you on a journey, you know, it becomes part of you, uh, becomes part of your life. It's something you can trust, you know, it's your buddy. Um, and so it's the details, I guess, of, of your, of your demands. Um, what you what you want from this product so you said market those, right away does it um is it yeah. harder design for economy or luxury in your opinion i think in my opinion uh i, I would definitely say luxury um yeah for sure why do you think that is um so let's take let's say the apollos and the ditch Maso, for example um you know we are really utilizing the the very best of you know engineering technology uh, the very best of materials. And also, you know, we have extremely high levels of safety standards, uh, ridiculous constricting, you know, almost suffocating regulations. 
um, that we all have to abide by. So, you know, a luxury product, you know, such as those kind of cars and vehicles, they really have to meet the strictest demands of, um, you know, of the regulations and also of the consumer. I suppose that in the luxury world, too, you have to, whatever you're doing has to be special, too. I mean, if you're designing a Kia Rio or a Hyundai Accent or something like that, if it kind of looks mm-hmm. like something else, eh, it's kind of okay. But if you're designing something like the De Tomaso or the Apollo, I mean, these cars, are they need to be extremely special and they need to stand out. And that's got to be a challenge, too. Yeah, again, um, this is uh, incredible. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, so about this, yeah, they definitely need to have their own identity and character, which is really difficult um, these days because, you know, there's such a huge saturation of uh, cars and there's only, only so much configuration you can do to them um, due to uh, the regulations, you know, as I've said before. So you really have to pay respect to, um, you know, all, all of these guidelines and make sure that you don't, you know, do something that that cannot be manufactured, you know, because we also have limits of manufacturing, especially when we're working with materials like carbon fiber. Um, we have to respect performance figures. This is, you know, aerodynamics. You know, this kind of dictates a lot of the forms uh, and the general shape of the car. Um, things like, yeah, also, uh, like I've mentioned before, aerodynamics and the cooling, you know, how do you sculpt this in a way where it's unique and people have not done it before? So, there's only a certain amount of elements you can do because beneath the skin, the skeleton is almost, you know, it's almost consistent throughout, let's say, mid-engined uh, hyper supercar, right? You've got your inner, uh, you got it in the coolers uh, and, you, and your general oil coolers in, in similar positions. Your engine has mid-mounted, you know, your glass house has to serve. The occupants inside has to be safe. Uh, vision angles, all of these things all come into play, but eventually... You know, it's a very fine gap that you can control. Do you think that I there was more freedom back then? Like if you were designing a car in the 60s, like a, like when De Tomasa was doing cars in the 60s or whatever, the freedom oh, yeah. that they had because everything was new and fresh, whether it's the design or the mechanicals and everything, they could do almost anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look with history, you know, it was only becoming to, well, like around about the 80s time where regulations became a thing, you know. And it's for the good thing, you know, of course, it's for safety and people have to be safe when they're driving these cars. But prior to that, you know, we saw like these crazy jet inspired cars, you know, almost like Jetsons type glass houses, especially in the in the U.S. We had all these crazy decorations, you know, polished metal everywhere. It was really, you know, design was really alive uh, in those periods, in my opinion. Um, they, were, they were really special and really unique, uh, very, very expressive. So much more so than I would say today, you know. So what's my take on it? What uh, what designers do you look up to most when you look back like that? Um, mm, Buck Mr. Fuller. I mean, he had had this really cool concept at the time, which was uh, this this idea of a a moving house, you know, on wheels. And this is something that you know that is slowly creeping up in our world now today to recognize this uh, volume. But as an extension of you know of your house, you know when we talk about future mobility and these these type of topics, and yeah, so Buckminster was pretty ahead of his time back then to propose something like that was pretty cool. Um, uh, Diet Rams and Braun Brothers, you know, they carried this cool philosophy, which ultimately led to you know the direction of Apple and how it, and where it's got today. Um, Henry Dreyfus, you know, these the the, the really cool 
uh, streamliner uh, back in the American trains. You know, this almost like Cyclops-looking uh, train machine, which was you know really really cool for me uh, to see the, to see those kind of influences back in the days because they were you know even trains looked damn cool. Yeah. So, for sure. I mean, when yeah, you look at like the the bullet trains that were conceptualized back then, and um, especially some awesome. stuff in Japan that they actually ended up doing, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, but, you know, this goes beyond the you know the steamliners that they had at the time. They were like they were, in my opinion, really crazy. They were almost like spaceships, but you know, on rails. So that was a uh, was a pretty interesting era, um, kind of like this Art Deco era. Do you think people are scared to design stuff like that anymore? Do you think there's this fear from designers and and maybe it's not the designers, maybe it's the the art directors and the manufacturers coming down on them mm. to take these risks to do things like that? Yeah, because you know a lot of these uh, a lot of these companies have a an extraordinary amount of legacy to uphold. You know, you know when you take things and you deliver a product, it immediately goes into social media, and you know there's you know. It, immediately destroyed most of the times people say it looks like this and looks like that you know we see this all the time um so it's incredibly difficult um for those guys to kind of just get it right um because of the legacy they have and because of the technology is moving forward the market's always changing you know there's expectations beyond belief in every every single generation i mean these guys now expect the level of uh, you know an s-class technology and comfort in this crazy hypercar, you know, back then nobody cared about this, this level of luxury. You know, back then people just wanted a fast car so they can just go fast. Right. Uh, and most of the times they broke down, right? <laughs> yes. um, so today's fun is incredibly, you know, astonishingly difficult. Uh, and it's such a high caliber throughout the product. You know, it's very, very challenging. So when you look at the, the way that someone designs a car or any designer, how does, even for you, how does color factor in when you're designing the car is there do you have a color in mind when you're when you draw something out or do you do it as like a grayscale or white or black yeah i generally start with grayscale so in my mind it works more effectively when i understand the shapes and geometry uh but color is very very important so let's say let's take the dismas for example you know i chose here a kind of like a candy um pearlescent with a gold uh gold uh metallic and so the purpose of this was is to because the P72's form is uh, very curvy, it's very round. So what I wanted to do was uh, make the environment work with it. So as the car is moving, we have these cool uh, contrasting reds that really accentuates the 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 uh, whole volumes of the car. So it makes it look more rounded in appearance. Uh, and how many times did you change the red like how, how many different variations of that red were there when you were looking uh not not a lot of times a few times i kind of knew exactly what uh, which red we should go for um we were but we were testing them on our on our you know carbon pieces uh we were doing simulations of it a lot you know in our in a visualizer and our software to, to really kind of capture that red and the, just the right amount of uh, gold metallic so when you so, de- when you design something like the Apollo uh, and design that shape, which is basically yeah. a future oriented hypercar, right? That car is wild. And then you look at the yeah. De Tomaso, the P seventy two, which is a completely heritage based design. How do you approach those two differently? 
Um, yeah, so the Apollo really, you know, it's a new company with very little legacy. You know, it's it's, it's still kind of like a startup uh, in terms of its uh, in, in terms of how long it's been alive. Uh, it's, it's generally designed to appeal to a newer kind of generation and a newer audience. So those, uh, I don't know if you know the term Generation Z, uh, along those kind of uh, guys. Sure. So people that were brought up in the digital world that was used to seeing, you know, transformers, spaceships, all these kind of futuristic uh, designs and vehicles at the palm of the hand. So it was relatable. So Apollo, the product Apollo IE is a statement for the brand that it cons- it's, it's basically saying, yeah, this is where we're heading. You know, our supercars are meant to serve the upcoming generation that's coming. Um, so it's laying the foundations of its intent through design and slowly the brand will fulfill um, you know this 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 um, evolving generation. Uh, yes, the Demaso is completely different. Like you said, it holds an extraordinary amount of history, and so much so that a lot of people don't even know much about it beyond the Pantera. So with the P72, this was kind of like a reminder, uh, paying homage to this extraordinary brand that holds that held so much history and achievements uh, uh, throughout his period. Uh, the P-72 was yeah, designed to illustrate this. It's designed to tell his story of this particular era of time, which was the 60s, you know, the prototype era. So what was, how did you score that gig? Like, what do you have to do to get that job with De Tommaso? I mean, do they reach out to you and say, hey, draw us a few things? Or what's kind of the, the, the start of a project like this? The start of a project, I think, um, at the time, you know, I finished Apollo, and then we moved because it's under the same, uh, let's say, the same group at the moment. So, Ideal Team Ventures. Okay. So, you know, with, with the success of the Apollo, I was then carried over to do, you know, the the Ditmasa. And initially, during any kind of design process or phases, you always start with you know, what you would believe is the best approach, you know, as a designer. And then these get passed on to the board and they, they get discussed and then, you know, you get feedback and, you know, everybody wants, you know, you want to satisfy every, you know, everybody in, in the team and, you know, the direction of the design has to accommodate markets. You know, you have to take these things into account. Does that ever get frustrating? Uh, it does get a little bit frustrating because, yeah, because you know sometimes you wish it could have been different, but you know it it really does. You know it becomes you know you have to drop that ego and you just have to become part of this team collaboration and just you know trust the process and that it's all going to work out. So these are unfortunately some of the things that designers have to get used to because you know we respond really basically to the consumer and the market, and you know this is what the de- designer is supposed to do. It's supposed to create these amazing, beautiful products that serves the consumer. You can make crazy, beautiful, stunning pieces of art, but, you know, if they can't go on or they, if they can't go beyond an art gallery or a museum, then it's, it's pointless. It's a useless thing. So you're, when you're carrying these kind of uh, design activities, you also and always have to consider what the market demand is, you know, in order for the brand to survive and continue doing you know, what it does, and that's making cars. So tell us about designing the car. How did that process work? Yeah, so we would start by drafting a few themes. So I would sketch uh, several proposals. You know, it could be up to 10, 20 at a time. 
Uh, we would. Do you ever give them uh, like 10 and you're like, oh, I really hope you pick this one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> always, you know, always. I would always kind of like, you know, put it back in, put, put one of those back there again. And when I, you know, do the next kind of briefing, it's, it's there. So it kind of like he sees it again or they see it again. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, uh, but eventually I think, I think, uh, it, it really, it was successful after all, uh, after the unveiling, it was really successful actually, you know, the cars, uh, it, re- it received tremendous, uh, interest and demand. So it really took us by surprise actually, you know, cause it was the, the, the direction in which the brand, you know, it was a bit of a gamble because nobody knew if it would be acceptable these days to reintroduce, you know, a car that looks like this or represented a certain period of the 60s back into the modern world again, uh, but using, you know, design with modern techniques and engineered with, you know, the best of engineering that we have today. I think everybody's so used to seeing so many lines on cars and there's so many angles and, and so much geometry so that when you look mm. at this car, it's all based on curves. And I think, and it's really, really a beautiful design. It's a beautiful car. And I think you really shocked people with what, something beautiful could look like versus something that's engineered. I think people are getting a little carried away with making something Mm -hmm. look like it's engineered for performance versus something that's engineered for, for beauty. And I think that maybe is part of the difference Mm -hmm. of why this car stood out for everybody so fast. Yeah, I think, I think it was just refreshing, you know, for, for people and for the public to see something that was so drastically different uh, amongst its competitors today. Um, yeah, like, yeah, you're right with, uh, companies are always chasing numbers and figures and downforce levels and, you know, going around the track the quickest, but, you know, but there's a, there's an other side of the demographic that doesn't really care about these things. They just want something that was, you know, that's that beautiful, that's soft, that's curvy, you know, that is representative of, uh, of a time with emotional factor, you know, more something like, let's say more, more of a piece of art than, let's say, a, a full on track monster sort of thing right right so when i look at this thing i see copper all over the place and that's really special too yeah. how did the copper come into play what was the impetus for that um i thought you know it'd be cool to introduce copper into it it's something that's uh uh you know something in our modern times that we see a lot in decor but also you know there, there was all some also some 60s uh inspiration in there from you know so they have these things like uh Copper lamps, which is really popular at the time. Um, so as I looked at the dials, uh, I applied the copper material to my visualizing for hey, you know, this, this this works with the leather. You know, this might be something different and cool. So I didn't want to go for the generic path of going silver because that's what everybody expected. And purely for me, it was uh, you know appealing to a range of people, not just automotive enthusiasts. You know, I wanted. I wanted um, a wider demographic to to appreciate uh, what we've designed here, and it's not just you know how car guys should see it. It should really be you know representative of art, um, distinct features that carries a story that you can tell to people in the year. So when you ask me about this copper, I would say yeah, a couple lamps from the sixties. Why not? It's cool. You know, I want to bring that back, and you know, there's a story attached to it. But it also illustrates the level in which the brand is willing to go for for its uh, you know for its clientele. So they're not afraid to suggest, um, you know, this type of color uh, for the clientele. They they almost embrace it, and you know they want people to feel uh, that they they're inside something that's incredibly special and bespoke. 
when I see the copper, it's something I want to, I really want to touch it because it feels organic and warm versus you know, <laughs> stainless or, you know, titanium or anything like that always has, you know, it looks like metal. Obviously copper is metal too, but it just has yeah. a different feel to it. Yeah, exactly. So it has this level of personality that, you know, you don't really uh, expect uh, from, from your silver these days because it's so, so used to seeing it. It's everywhere. It's in every car almost, you know, the color silver. Um, for something like this, the supercar, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, about your emotions. You want to touch it. You want to feel it, you know, and a lot of people have said the same thing, you know. So the interior is wild. It seems like you guys put just as much time into the interior as designing the exterior um, with the instrument cluster and the shifter and everything. How do you tie mm -hmm. something like that interior and make sure something like that goes with the rest of the car when it's such a statement piece? Um. What do you mean, as in the, the heritage or? No, no, no just in terms of the, just the overall vision of the car. When you have something that's like a statement piece, like that instrument cluster and the shifter and everything else, how mm -hmm. do you make sure that ties into the rest of the design? Ah, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's definitely something unique. So well, the, the intention with the interior, you know, I was being told that, yeah, it should be something special. It should be an experience. It should be theater when you get inside of it, you know, so. Along these uh, kind of taglines, I yeah, went to work and, you know, I found a particular era in time where I thought, wow, you know, this, again, attaching the story of, you know, the mid-50s and 60s back into this design, um, particularly in the American automotive themes. They had a lot of these clusters, these instrument panels and, and these circular instrument panels with, that, that were high polished and all kinds of crazy, wacky fonts. Uh, I'm just thinking to myself, like, you know, why are we not seeing this anymore? You know, we are not seeing this. And if we are, we're seeing it in kind of like a plasticky, modern, reinterpreted form that doesn't really look like that kind of period of time. Um, so this was an opportunity, again, to kind of introduce the story again of that, of that era. Say, look, you know, um, there was incredible beauty back then in automotive design. And the design of this car tells the story. To its, you know, to, to the people and to the consumers. So something like the shifter assembly, which is, uh, it's really, it looks beautifully engineered. How do you tie the design mm. of that shifter? Or let me let me phrase it this way: Why is it important to um, show somebody the shifter assembly like that? Why do you think that that moves people and they see that and they go, "Ooh, that looks great"? Why do you think that uh, that occurs in their mind when they look at it? I think it just goes back to making this, uh, you know, mechanical and manual connection to the car, right? So these days, everyone's crying out for a manual shifter, but, you know, a lot of the companies can't deliver this because it's not economical. You know, it, it, they won't make money from it, and the demographic is so small that the demand in reality is really small. Uh, you know, people like Porsches can do it, um, which is, you know, a godsend, which is incredible for them. I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing. <laughs> but for us, it really is to illustrate or the intention that, yes, this car is definitely coming with a manual. And whether you like it or not, it's going to be a manual. And we designed it like this to kind of tell this point again. Um, at the minute, though, in this car, it's a racing sequential. So it only goes up and down. So we didn't utilize the kind of the paddle shift method. We went to the stick and just, uh, you know, designed this in a way where, it, where it's going to tell people that, oh, yeah, this is going to be a manual. So 
if you were to look across all the automotive marks right now, what is your what is your favorite brand for what they're doing for design? What they're doing with design, um, very interesting. Um, I like the way. Uh, well, well, Porsche is obviously again one of those brands that have kept its philosophy for you know, decades. You know, very evolutionary form, very functional, very effective weapon almost. You know, it serves as a all rounder for for everything. Um, then you have guys like you know Bentley that really, you know, that has really gone up a level now where the interior design is amazing. It's fascinating when you sit in there. It's just you know a nice balance of tech and this, you know, analog luxury that comes with it. Um, I've always liked Ferrari. You know, I always thought they were kind of like the best in what they did. Uh, very conflicting uh, opinions about Ferrari after pinning Farina. Uh, I just hope that they will continue to, you know, create beautiful product, products, uh, perhaps even simplify them a little bit more. Um, McLaren also, you know, I always had a respect for McLaren also. So as you look back into, you know, you did, you did this day, Tommaso, the P72, you did, did a beautiful job. It's a beautiful car. Now, who would you want to say, hey, I want you to make this car. We, uh, to, I want you to bring this car back to life in, in modern times. If there was a car, what would it be? Wow, this is cool. Um, you know, one of my favorite cars has always been the Shelby Daytona. Uh, I love the Daytona shape of it, and it's, it's amazing because it's, the story ties in them with the, the P70 and the P70, so the design of the Daytona was the Pete Brock, right? And I've always wanted to see something like this all along this kind of shape come back, where it's you know, sitting quite high, fat rubber tires, you know, it's pure American muscle, long bonnet, and a really negative kind of like cut-off rear end. Um, this is something I would like to see, but in the way that it is, it evolved slightly, not not in a way where it's kind of like a modern sort of interpretation. It's just a nice little evolution of what it was before. That would be perfect. It sounds like you need to call up Ford. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, I got this idea for you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It'd be so cool. You know, I think they did a concept in the past uh, of it. Uh, I think around the same time as the Ford GT. Um, yeah, so they introduced this Chrome concept of it, which was cool, but it, it was kind of a step too far from what Peter had done. So I would really like to see, yeah, more of those 60s lines coming back. So in to kind of cap it all off, how has all of this changed your life, doing the Apollo and the and the P72? What has it done for you in terms of um, just your concept of design and, and what the future holds for you? Uh, what it's done for me, so, yeah, so now I'm establishing my own kind of design house uh, uh, called Wind Design. Uh, we are pushing, you know, these kind of bespoke services, but also aiming to do something that, that covers a wider demographic, so it's something to help people, and also through through design and transportation. Um, so these are kind of the things I want to achieve in my life, is just to make everyone's lives a little bit easier at a mass scale. Uh, but also be, in, be involved with all these delicate and passionate projects at the same time. So I think that uh, what's made me aware of is when we did the Apollo and did the Master was that uh, the world is so big, 
uh, you know, there, there really is a market for everyone. You know, you compare the IE to the DT, they're both completely different things, both completely, you know, of different stories and backgrounds. They speak different philosophies and it's so vast that uh, it just reminds me that, you know, yeah, the world is full of opportunity and it can be better. We can make it better through design. And that's what I would like to do or continue to do. That's awesome. On that note, where can people find uh, Wind Design? Where do they find you guys if they want to look at, into more? Yeah, so it's uh, winddesign.co. So it's W-Y-N design, all one word, and .co. Oh, yeah, they could find me through my Instagram, Mr. Uh, underscore underscore win. So Mr. Win will come up. And also winddesign uh, is also on Instagram. It seems to be kind of the connecting factor these days. Yeah, it does. Uh, well, this is such a, for you, obviously, it's such a visual <laughs> medium. It's, that's, that's the way forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people don't even use business cards in my opinion. So many meetings and so many, you know, uh, yeah, meetings with suppliers and, and partners. And everyone's like, yeah, hey, you know, watch your Instagram. You know, it seems to be the way forward now. The only problem for me is someone will give their give me their Instagram and then I then I add them and I'm like, oh, wait, I don't remember. I can't find it anymore. <laughs> and then he's scrolling yeah. through like a thousand people trying. Oh, yeah, there there he is right there. That's a yeah, little. Exactly. <laughs> I have the same problem. I have the same problem. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, all right, dude, man, I really appreciate you coming on. I really enjoyed this um, as, as someone that went to art school and did design work. And I don't I don't do any of that anymore. But my heart still has a part of that in me. And and hearing you talk about all this stuff and hear how passionate you are was really awesome. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, Chris. You know, yeah, just put me up anytime. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love discussing it with you guys. Yeah, for sure. All right. Take care of yourself. I appreciate it. No, take care, Chris. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was, for me, legendary. I really enjoy hearing from designers and the way that they see the world. That's why I wanted to ask more questions like, how do you see the world? Like, what? Right. It's and kind of getting that insight into why they design the way they do in that process. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to say goodbye. But before we do, I want to remind everybody to go to patreon.com slash overclass crest. Crest. Correct. It's <laughs> and, over the crest. Uh, over crest. I know what my podcast is called. <laughs> and uh, make sure you leave us a five-star review on iTunes as well. We right. really, really appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Patreon members, of course, get exclusive content yep. every month. We record awesome history stories. If you like the ones that you hear here, you'll like the ones that are exclusive on Patreon as well. All right. Take care, guys. We'll see you on Friday. <laughs>